Welcome to Sparking Wholeness, where we talk all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul. I'm your host, Erin Carey. I'm a survivor of bipolar disorder and a self-proclaimed nutrition nerd who loves asking why. As a certified integrative nutrition health coach, my goal is to help people find balance, and I want to help you find ways to spark wholeness in your life. For more information, check out sparkingwholeness.com or on the Instagram handle, Sparking Wholeness. And now, get ready for today's awesome show. Welcome, everybody, to Sparking Wholeness. I am super excited to introduce you to Mitchell Isle today. Mitchell Isle is a licensed professional counselor, addiction expert, and certified sex addiction therapist. He works from a holistic perspective to help people address addictive behaviors and their underlying symptoms. He believes people can find healing and lasting change through the consistent experience of healthy relationships in their lives. It is Mitch's mission to help people who feel unsatisfied in life identify and meet their core underlying needs that often go unmet due to psychological, emotional, physical, relational, and spiritual issues. Mitch is also the founder and owner of Communion Collaborative, a collaborative therapy and wellness practice providing multidiscipline, professional services, whole person care, and collaboration. Its long-term vision is to also provide free mental health counseling, education, and prevention services for the community. Mitch, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. I am excited to hear everything that you do. So you are a you are an addiction expert and a certified hold on, what what is the certification again? It's a certified oh, sex addiction therapist, right? Yes. So yeah. you're not just licensed as a professional counselor. You had to get extra training beyond that, correct? Correct. Yeah. The, the, the training is, is very rigorous. Um, mm. And it's really important as a therapist or a counselor. And I think especially if anybody's interested in doing any type of counseling or therapy that um, they look into and understand the training that a therapist has. And so sometimes, you know, there's a lot of great uh, programs out there that help people learn about uh, counseling and therapy, Mm -hmm. but that extra training is really needed once you specialize in something. And so um, it was, it was really important to me. And I think for a variety of of therapists that I work with and the people that I work with, we want to do really good work and care, providing that care and support for uh, the people that we meet with. So yeah, and I, because I think that even just saying sex addiction, it's a very, ooh, it's like there's a stigma to that, right? And so anybody who thinks that they may be struggling, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later what that means, but um, that they want to see somebody who is definitely knows what they're talking about and has received that extra training. So I think that that's really cool that there's even a training for that, that there's even a specialty for that. I think that that's really important. Absolutely. It, it's, and, and it, I think the, the name of the certification is also deceiving because, mm-hmm. um, you know, when, when we're looking at sexual addiction, mm-hmm. we're not looking at it just as an issue in of itself. Mm. It's really important to look at it holistically. Yeah. And, and so when I have somebody come into my office, I also want to learn a little bit more about a variety of areas in their life. Um, and I want to learn their unique rhythms mm-hmm. um, from their work habits, their money and spending habits, um, to their eating habits, mm. um, and a variety of other areas. 
and how do all those different areas interact with um, their sexuality and, and sexual expression and behavior? Mm-hmm. Wow. I love that because I just personally, I'm really big on getting to the root of issues because it's never just the issue, right? Like that's usually a symptom symptom of something else. Um, like my kids love the show, the movie Shrek. And you know how he talks about, I don't know if you've seen Shrek, but he talks about how ogres have layers. I feel like addiction <laughs> has layers, right? And people, we all have layers, but for sure, addiction, there are layers. And that's something I definitely want to talk to you about a little bit more, but how do people like, what kind of clients do you see? What are, what are people, the people that come see you, like, tell me a little bit about how they get started even seeing you. Yes. So typically, and I would say this is the majority mm-hmm. is, uh, I will have a spouse who mm-hmm. either reaches out to me or, um, really, uh, kind of lays down the law and gives mm-hmm. an ultimatum they've had enough um, with the behaviors, yeah. whether it's substances or um, problematic sexual behaviors or mm-hmm. gambling. Um, and so they come in, some of them are um, at that point where they're, they're just open and willing, right? They don't want to mm-hmm. lose their marriage. They don't want to lose their mm-hmm. family or they've had issues at work. Um, mm. And some of them come in because their spouse is telling them to come in and they don't want to be there. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I see the whole spectrum Mm-hmm. Um, and as you said, it was so well said, Aaron, that um, usually that's not the core issue, right? And so they're coming in to work on the addiction um, or at least to, to uh, appease and please their spouse. Um, and, and really, I just want to, to meet them where they're at and mm-hmm. join with them and, and figure this out. And usually that means um, developing some trust and rapport in the beginning um, but then we, we start looking at, okay, how can you, if you're willing, how, how can we stop engaging in these behaviors mm-hmm. so that your loved one can um, at least be in the same room with you and actually start to work through these things and find some healing. Um, yeah. but, but through that process, we're going to also look at um, what are some of these underlying issues? Um, and I think that process looks different for each person. Yeah, no, for sure. So tell me a little bit about like starting the process. Like how would you even, how do you know if somebody has a sex addiction versus a struggle, you know, um, just with some behaviors that their spouse doesn't like, like you yes. said. That's a, that's a great question. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's common to, to experience someone coming in and uh, they go right to, oh, this is an addiction. Mm-hmm. I have yeah. to fix this. And, and even though I, I work with addiction issues, I want to be very careful not to just jump right to that conclusion. Right. And so at the beginning, it's very important to, to do a thorough um, discussion and assessment of um, not only what's going on currently and the problems, but uh, that person's history, their context, um, their personality. I really want to get to know them um, in a very deep way um, and experience them. And, and I think it's through that process. And then also I can do um, a lot of testing as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I can give a sexual dependence inventory. Oh, interesting. Um, 
think we'll talk about this um, shortly, but um, you know, there's a lot of underlying issues, as we said, including mm-hmm. trauma, um, mm-hmm. you know, stress, anxiety, depression. So there's a lot of uh, assessments that I can give that, that don't provide all the answers, but provide a piece of the puzzle as well. So we want to do a thorough assessment. Um, and so the difference between a struggle and addiction, um, I, you know, I, I kind of look at it like this, because I could, I could throw out a lot of definitions of addiction and all mm-hmm. that stuff, but really what it comes down to is, um, are you able to control your behavior? Mm-hmm. Is it creating problems in your life? Um, and, and if so, let's do something about it. So I know it's important for loved ones for them to send their, their spouse or their, you know, a teen or a child to come in um, because they think they have an addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, but really it's not, it's not really my goal to say and label, is this an addiction or not? If it's creating problems in your life that earlier, this, this, there's this, um, this problem that is increasing and it is a massive, massive problem. Um, there are people coming in waves, um, talking about their problematic porn use Mm. or, um, other sexual behaviors that they can't Mm. stop even though they want to. So there are, um, you know, clinicians use criteria Mm -hmm. to evaluate whether, um, their addiction is present. And I think it's really important, Aaron, to also say that, that people know that, that sexual addiction is not a formal diagnosis in the DSM manual. And all that, the DSM manual, all it is is a manual for clinicians, uh, psychiatrists, insurance companies, um, where it has a category and um, different diagnoses. And all diagnosis is is a cluster of symptoms Mm -hmm. that allows people to talk uh, efficiently about those clusters of symptoms. So the American Psychological Association has not recognized sexual addiction um, as an actual diagnosis. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, so it is, uh, there's a variety of reasons for that. Um, Hmm. One, including research. Um, Unlike substance abuse and addiction, um, sexual addiction doesn't, just doesn't have as much research out there Hmm. as um, substance abuse. Um, there's also political reasons. There's, uh, it's just a very controversial topic because you start talking about people's sexuality. It is, it is right. So, so just the, the research for, for substances, for example, um, and the abuse of substances has been around for decades. Hmm. And, uh, you know, the research for sexual addiction, um, is, is more recent than that. Probably I would say in the past decade, maybe two, but you only had a few people, including uh, Patrick Carnes. Um, he's kind of the, the, the trailblazer um, in the research mm. for sexual addiction and also mm. uh, started the certification um, okay. for sexual addiction treatment. So um, there's just, you know, when you, you talk about insurance companies, um, starting to have to pay for yeah. um, issues with sexual behavior and that type of thing. So um, there's this very controversial conversation, even amongst clinicians, 
hmm. about whether sexual addiction even exists. Wow. Uh, so, you know, that's something that I really investigated for myself. And I would, I would uh, encourage anybody listening um, who, who, you know, is thinking that this may be an issue in their lives or someone else's life um, to really investigate and uh, get all the information and make a decision for themselves. But based upon my experience and my research, what I have found is that, especially through the neuroscience research, et cetera, mm -hmm. that um, the brain does not distinguish between substances or behaviors or experiences or relationships. It involves mm -hmm. the same parts of the brain. Yeah, um, so true. Yeah. Yeah. That's so fascinating. Okay. So when you're talking about the brain, because I, I like talking about the brain, you are you talking about like dopamine, like the way it lights up, the brain lights up under a, you know, scan or whatever. Is it that kind of a thing? That's it. That's okay. it. So, huh. so we're talking about addiction in general. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what we have learned about the brain is that it involves uh, certain specific parts of the brain, including the reward system, mm -hmm. uh, motivation, and memory, right? And so any time, Aaron, that you or I or anybody else experiences something that's pleasurable um, or that feels good, our brains release dopamine. Right. And that, that neurotransmitter says, that felt really good. Mm -hmm. And it tells our conscious brain um, that that was really good. And then our conscious brain returns back glutamate and glutamate mm. says, remember that mm. don't, right. And this is a very natural process in the brain. Mm -hmm. It happens when we're taking a walk or reading a book. Um, and also when we drink alcohol or mm -hmm. engage in sex. And so it's a very natural process. Um, but unfortunately, um, if we overuse that process, if we discover that that process can help us to cope with emotional discomfort or pain, um, or if we're looking to fulfill and meet certain basic human dependency needs mm -hmm. like safety, connection, mm -hmm. and love, um, we start to learn to trust those things. We start to learn to trust sex um, or mm. alcohol instead of relationships. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. yeah, no, sorry. Now you got my head spinning. That's so good because I, I also know um, just from my own family history, like I, genetics plays a role in addiction, right? And how people, some people be more likely to be addicted to behaviors or substances or whatever it is. And um, I even think that there are some genetic predispositions for low dopamine. So there are some of us that we're always looking for that high, right? Exactly. And so some people exactly. are going to be more prone to this and some people it's like, Oh, not a big deal. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So there, there's a variety of factors that play into this. Um, and I think you're absolutely history. Um, we have to look at, you know, what's happening in the person's present, just present life. Um, how do they deal with and have learned how to cope with stress, but are there also underlying genetic predispositions for it? Yeah. 
Wow. And there's, ugh, yeah, there's so much there. So again, this is going into from the beginning, there are layers to this and it's not just like, well, he's looking at porn every day, you know, get him some help. He looks at porn all the time. It's not just about that. There, there's some other things. There's brain science. There's gosh. Well, so let's get into how does, um, a person's upbringing, or you mentioned past trauma, how does that play a role in addiction? So there's typically, Aaron, two major groups of people that I meet with that I see come in for this issue. One group, um, and I see this more with uh, young adults and teens, mm-hmm. um, where, where really we comb through their history and we don't really find much that would lead to uh, a maladaptive or just a dysfunctional way of coping, hmm. right? So there's no trauma in their history. There's nothing major that you would point at saying, oh, wow, that, that makes sense. Hmm. Um, and so this group um, has really found technology and pornography. And because that is a, a, a super stimulus, mm-hmm. um, it can be highly addictive. Right. And we see this in our society. I mean, I'm addicted yeah. to my phone. Oh, for right? sure. And, and yeah. so, um, yeah. And, and, you know, the, the companies that develop the technologies and the apps, they, they know psychology. They know mm-hmm. how um, our brains work. And I'm not saying that, you know, these companies are all, um, they all have ill intent, mm-hmm. but um, it's, it's basic science. Right. And, yeah. and so, um, people can become hooked on pornography mm-hmm. very, very quickly. So that's one group that mm-hmm. I see. But the other group, and this is probably the larger group, um, I see uh, a variety of, you know, uh, I said dysfunctional family dynamics. Look, we all have dysfunctional family right. dynamics. <laughs> I'm glad you, you clarified that. Me, yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, you go home with me and you're a fly on the wall and you will, you will see some stuff. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so um, I think we all have a little bit of that. But, but typically the people I see in my office, um, you know, if there's a continuum of um, intensity um, mm-hmm. and this, of dysfunction in the family, um, typically they fall on the moderate to severe end of things. Mm. And so I see, um, everything from, um, direct physical, sexual, emotional, psychological abuse, mm-hmm. um, all the way to the other end of the spectrum. And these are the people that kind of fly under the radar, um, mm. who typically say, you know, uh, there's, there's no really major things in my family. My parents were very, uh, they took care of us. They provided for us. Um, but the other end of the spectrum is neglect, um, Mm. and families who, um, for whatever reason, we know parents do the best that they can, but for whatever reason, some parents on that end of the spectrum don't provide that that necessary nurturing, um, and connection. That's where I really try to communicate to the people that I meet with that, uh, sexual addiction is an intimacy disorder. Hmm. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Tell me more about that. So I, I haven't heard that before. I'm like making notes right now. I'm like, Ooh, that's really interesting. Um, <laughs> okay. So tell me, so it's, it's an intimacy disorder. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So, um, 
basically it's it's just having uh, severe challenges in developing long-term relational bonds and attachments. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that's a mouthful, but but basically it's just this deeply ingrained p- pattern um, of pursuing, um, you know, in a problematic way, sexual behaviors, um, relationships um, as a way to escape pain um, and mm. emotional discomfort, or like I said before, to meet those basic human dependency needs. Um, and that leads to shame, isolation, and secrecy, mm. and that you know, starts to develop this, this double life. Um, yeah. One is this secrecy, and I compartmentalize that and then just live this other life. So there's a life of reality, and then there's a life of fantasy. And so, um, you know, it's about learning over time that we can't trust our relationships. Hmm, that wow. uh, to meet our needs or to satisfy us, we have to look to sex or intimacy um, as the thing that we can trust. And and to expand upon that, there's, you know, uh, one part of the what I work through with um, people is who are wrestling with this um, is looking at these deeply ingrained perceptions that they have of themselves, um, the world, other people and relationships. And so it starts with themselves. How do they perceive themselves? Hmm. And when I say intimacy disorder, it's not just about intimacy with others. It's also how do they perceive and relate to themselves? Hmm. So So an identity thing is what you're saying. Yes, exactly. Wow. Exactly. So it, it's um, it's the belief that deep down, I'm basically a bad, unworthy person. Hmm. Deep down, and if that's the case, then no one can love me the way I am because I'm defective. Um, there's something wrong with me, right? And now we start talking about shame, mm-hmm. right? And and if no one can love me, then the way that I am, then I can't trust them to meet my needs um, and depend upon them. And so then I need to look for something else that I can trust that um, won't hurt me, that won't reject me. Um, And in this case, we're talking about sex as the Mm -hmm. thing that I can trust instead. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And so when it comes to sexual addiction, that is the safe place that they've found to cope with the unworthiness, the negative feelings and all of that. Is that what, that what you're saying? Exactly. Yep. And, and, you know, when, when we're younger, if no one has taught uh, childhood development, if no one teaches us or models for us how to cope in healthy ways, then we're going to, we're survivors, right? We're going to learn, um, what works for us and how to cope and survive. And so um, for some of us that we've, maybe we discover healthy ways, um, but for some of us, we also um, really struggled. And then we found um, that sex, uh, masturbation mm-hmm. is a way that we can be in private and mm-hmm. um, experience a way to alter our mood. And mm. And if you really think about it at its basic level, if I'm feeling some kind of emotional discomfort or pain mm-hmm. and I can feel pleasure mm-hmm. yeah. 
that is a powerful connection that's mm-hmm. being made in the brain. That, yeah. okay, I feel pain, but I can very quickly change that and feel pleasure. Mm-hmm. And I do that over and over and over again. Um, yeah. it creates those strong connections in the brain. Wow. Yeah. And it goes back to the dopamine, right? And, and yeah, it's, it's interesting that it starts off, like you said, emotion, it's, it's an emotional aspect, but it's also rooted in the physical and it, it, it's all connected, you know, well, which I always say that about everything anyway. Um, but let's, let's go back to shame for a minute because I love talking about shame. Um, just because I know for me, that's been a big thing for my journey is learning to deal with my own shame. But, yeah. um, do you notice, and this is not a knock on religion at all, but um, because that's my upbringing and that's something that um, has really been healing for me and my spirituality and all of that. And so I, this is not a knock on any kind of religious anything, but I wonder if sometimes if, if people grow up in a strict, maybe rule-based environment, um, does that make the shame process uh, worse? Um, or does it, I, I don't know. What, what have you seen there? Yeah. I, I don't know if I would say it makes it worse, but I do think you you're onto something with, um, the families, the family systems when we're growing up that, uh, you know, the, the research has shown and the research that I'm referring to, um, is some of Patrick Carnes's research in which he, um, surveyed and interviewed um, over a thousand people who identified as wrestling with sexual addiction. And they've had um, from three to five years of treatment and recovery. And, um, you know, he, he really walked through a pretty thorough um, investigation on, okay, what is common about these various variety of different backgrounds Mm -hmm. and um, personalities of these people. Um, And one that he found is that a very common factor is that they came from a rigid and disengaged family Mm. system. And so rigid refers to exactly what you're talking about, but one that um, really takes the communication and the way that they relate with each other to that extreme so just as you said, that strict, inflexible family system that, you know, you know life is complex. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes, yes, we need that, um, that, that boundary and that line of this is not good or this is good. But a family that can't flex with the complexities of life mm-hmm. um, tend to see influence um, you know, our children in certain ways, such as addiction. Um, and wow. then we have a disengaged hmm. um, part of it as well. And, and if you remember, that's, that's that other end of the continuum that I was talking about. Um, mm-hmm. That disengaged, disconnected, detached um, type of relationship between parent and child. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, as a parent, it's like a note to self, right? Like <laughs> we, it's that whole, con- and I'm not really a controlling person anyway, but um, I, I can see how just having that, you know, oh, you need to do this. You need to look the right way, say the right things, 
follow these rules. This is my house. This is the way we do things like kind of how that will seep in. Is that, is that what you're talking about? It, I, you know, I would say it's even, it's even more rigid than that. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, I, I think it's, I think it's important. Look, none of us are perfect as parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're all going to mess up, you know, for us, for all of us that mess up, we, we repair, right? We, mm-hmm. we reconnect. Uh, what I mean by that is just really inflexible uh, with life um, and, and the circumstances and situations that come up and there's no reconnecting. And so it's the same thing with disengaged. We don't uh, model for um, our children in the relationship themselves. Um, for example, when we mess up um, to come back to them mm-hmm. and take responsibility and um, and try to reconnect with our children. So when there's conflict in disengaged family systems, there is no coming back to and reconnecting again, or that's the major pattern. Um, and so, so the, those two types, sometimes I'll see one or the other, and sometimes I'll see both, um, that those both, both of those patterns are present. So with the disengaged then, so that goes back to, the intimacy disorder, right? So is that kind of the, cause I, it's just interesting. So you said the majority, they had that rigid and disengaged family dynamic, correct? And so That's then it. you said sexual addiction is an intimacy disorder. And so if you're not getting intimacy as a child in that way, right, then that would lead to always lacking that, needing that, searching for that in some way. Is that correct? That's correct. And, wow. and our parents, when we're younger, um, they're our template. Hmm. Now, I don't want to put too much pressure on parents, and I'm, always, I'm almost feeling the pressure right now with yeah, myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you, and you know, uh, I can't remember exactly where I, I read this, but um, we just have to get right 30% of the time as parents. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's 30%. Um, but we do contribute to that template for our, hmm. for our children. And, and so, um, there really is that connection from the research and what I see in the office that, um, you know, the rigid and disengaged systems um, and those dynamics in the family, um, there is a disordered, I hate to use that word, but a disordered way of connecting with each other. Um, and we tend to think about the explosive um, you know, conflict, that's the problem. And yes, that's, that's true. But I think what goes left under the radar is those disengaged systems. Wow. Like the completely like emotionally, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Distant or unavailable, emotionally unavailable parents. Exactly. Unavailable, absent, Hmm. whether, whether the parent hasn't been able to learn themselves and engage or because there's, I mean, there could be so many different reasons, right? Mm. Um, a lot of different children. And so there's only so much of the parent to go around. Right. Um, so I don't, I don't say that to discourage any parents mm-hmm. that are listening. Um, because I, I, I think that children and, and us as human beings are resilient. Mm-hmm. Right? For sure. And so, um, I think it's just a matter of being mindful and aware mm-hmm. that um, if if I have a difficulty as a parent in connecting, that um, 
I can also do some of my own work. Yeah. I can explore a little bit more myself, um, how I've learned how to connect. And the more that I learn about that and become more aware of how I connect, then um, I can start to grow and, hmm. and develop in that way. Hmm. So. And, and that might mean having to dig in through some, dig through some painful feelings and experiences, right? And, and your and own they have to. life. Yeah. So is that, as far as treatment goes then, are those some of the things that you, when you sit down with somebody and they're really struggling with these compulsive behaviors, is it you dig through their past and family of origin and um, what do you do? Like, how do you, how do you fix this? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, and, and I would start off to say, Aaron, that every person is unique. Mm -hmm. And so, um, it is important and it's very common, um, to a therapist to walk through a person's history. Mm -hmm. um, because of that uniqueness, um, I need to know um, the different details and patterns and really get to know this person um, mm -hmm. to join with them um, in this work. And, and so, yes, we, we want to go through and understand the dynamics and the, the, the relational styles um, of their mm -hmm. family history, but then it's not just family. It's also, um, learning about their relationship history outside mm. of that and then beyond that. Right. So yeah. know about, um, relationships, friendships, uh, romantic, intimate relationships. Mm -hmm. And it's not just relationships with people. And, and granted, this is my perspective on things, um, but relationships with other things as well. Right? What is my relationship with money like? Mm. What is my relationship with food like? Yeah. Um, and, and what I believe is that whatever issues we experience broadly in a variety of different areas, at some point we're going to express sexually and in our intimacy patterns as well. Mm. And so that's what I do wow. with, with my clients is first we need to, we need to stop the bleeding so to speak. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. So there's going to be a lot of, a lot of uh, behavioral um, work done. So mm -hmm. for example, um, you know, if, if someone is compulsively uh, visiting with and engaging with prostitutes, for mm -hmm. example, um, they need to stop seeing prostitutes. Right. right. Um, and, and once we're able to, to help stop some of the problematic behavior, um, especially if it's hurting their spouse or family right. or the way of work, et cetera, um, then we can start to explore more deeply some of these things. And, mm. and as I mentioned, the, the perceptions that they have of themselves and other people, um, and then also these relational patterns as well. Hmm. Wow, that's super interesting. Um, gosh, so as far as, the spouse is concerned, right? Like, so say somebody is listening and they think that their spouse is really struggling with this issue and, you know, whether it's, it could be porn or it could be, um, infidelity, but here's my quote. Okay. So it's one thing, this is where I, I'm trying to think of how to word this. <laughs> it's one thing if, um, you know, you're like, Oh my, like you mentioned the prostitute example. Oh my, you know, spouse is always going and having sex with prostitutes. Well, how does someone reconcile that with an issue which is like my spouse is always getting on and looking at porn and i know there are varying views on, uh, there are people that say porn is harmless there are people 
what is, how does, yeah, infidelity is porn infidelity. Like how do you, that's a really sticky question that I just threw at you. So yeah. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> yes. Um, you know, I, I try to keep it as, as simple as possible um, when it comes to these variety of issues. And again, I want to meet a person where they're at. If they're coming to my office and they're saying, this is a problem, mm-hmm. uh, then I want to help them with the problem. Um, and again, everybody's unique. And so that may look different from person to person. Mm-hmm. Um, but keeping it simple, is this creating a problem for you? So if someone is, is having sex, for example, outside of a marriage, mm-hmm. um, with an anonymous partner, for example, mm-hmm. uh, if, if the spouse learns that this person is having sex outside the marriage and they're okay with it, then they're probably not going to come to my office. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So and the same thing is with pornography, right? And, mm-hmm. and so someone who um, watches pornography and they don't see a, a problem with that um, and uh, they're not experiencing any consequences in their life, mm-hmm. they're probably not going to come in for help. Right. So the people who are coming into my office are um, experiencing consequences. Gotcha. And they can't stop. They're mm-hmm. trying to stop and they can't. Hmm. And that's the distinguishing factor. So there is a, a difference. And, and I see this, Aaron, a lot where um, someone has um, engaged in some kind of infidelity and in the relationship or the marriage. And their, their partner or spouse is saying that they have a sexual addiction hmm. and they find me. Mm-hmm. And what I what I try to do in the beginning is really help to one to, to provide a safe place for um, not only the person with the potential sexual addiction, but also the spouse as well. And I want to be very mindful of the, the impact um, that has taken place with the spouse. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also try to educate that um, infidelity is not a sexual addiction and sexual addiction is not necessarily infidelity. Now, they both can be present at the same time. Uh-huh. That's something that we have to explore and to gain clarity on. Hmm. And that um, goes back to the, di- the, the, not the, um, the criteria or the assessments that you used, exactly. that, you used that you talked about at the beginning, right? Um, okay. So, because it's not the same thing, but I think it is really quick to, for the hurting member of the, of the relationship to be like, Oh, well, they're just an addict. Well, they just can't stop. Or they, you know, like in that place of hurt, that would be the response, right? Exactly. There. So especially when there's infidelity, Mm -hmm. uh, but, but also just some kind of, of problematic sexual behavior, um, whether that's pornography or, um, you know, um, think about just the variety of um, human sexuality mm-hmm. right? behaviors. If you can think about it, um, you can engage in it. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that it's a problem, but if you can't control it, then it's a problem. Right. So um, when, when a spouse comes, comes in, they typically have been hurt and wounded deeply. Mm-hmm. 
and and I call it betrayal trauma. Oh, and wow. they experience um, symptoms very similar to trauma, including mm. hypervigilance, um, nightmares. Mm. Uh, essentially, their reality has been crushed and torn apart into pieces. Mm. And so they're looking for answers and they're trying to put the pieces back together again. Right. And, and so it makes sense why um, going right to sexual addiction um, may be tempting because it provides a, a, an answer right there. And unfortunately, it's not always that easy. Yeah. Um, so. Wow. Wow, that's so interesting. So basically, if, if somebody is feeling, when you're talking about especially sexual addiction and or infidel or whatever it is, when you're saying that they're not the same thing, sexual addiction, infidelity, not always the same thing. If it's something that's causing major disconnection in the relationship and causing a lot of problems in the relationship, that is when it's necessary to seek help and get support from somebody like you, correct? Absolutely. You know, it, it's really, I, I'm a therapist. I love therapy, mm -hmm. but I do acknowledge that therapy is not the only way to find healing. Hmm. Um, but I do think in therapy that it's a safe place and you have someone objective who can see things that the two people in the relationship or, or marriage can't. Yeah. And so to be able to have someone outside looking in and listening in, um, can help, um, that healing process. And so, yeah. yes, whether it's infidelity or whether it's sexual addiction or if it's both, um, you know, engaging in some, some counseling and therapy could be highly beneficial yeah. for that yeah. process. And do you counsel both parties together or do you, um, you only counsel with the person who has the behavior? I, you know, I, both. Mm -hmm. um, it just depends. So... Um, most of the people that I see are individuals mm -hmm. and um, they're coming in because they, they have some addictive qualities or the problematic behaviors. Um, I do a portion of people that I see, I do see some couples. Um, typically, um, if I see an individual, I won't see them as a couple as well. Um, there have been some times where I have done that, but I, I want to maintain um, trust with either the, the couple or the individual. And so sometimes it may be beneficial if I'm seeing someone to refer them out to another therapist mm -hmm. for the couple's work, or if I'm seeing right. them as a couple, refer one of them out to do the individual work. Mm. Uh, so there have been some exceptions in that for me, um, but for the most part, that's usually the way um, that I navigate that. Wow. Um, yeah, because I just wondered, I know it's hard. Th there's so many dynamics there. Usually uh, both parties are going to need counseling. At some, I mean, I'm a big fan of counseling anyway. Um, but yet, like you said, that betrayal trauma, like, hello, like that person's going to need counseling too. So it just, it works Thanks. together. But I do want to ask a question because I want to maybe uh, think, rethink a stereotype that I have personally. Um, when I think about sex addiction, I think about men. <laughs> I think about men being 
they're the only ones that can have a sex addiction. Um, is, is that like, can you break that stereotype for me or speak to that? Or is it only men? Do, how do women struggle? Does it manifest differently? Like, help me out here. It, it's definitely a myth. And, okay. um, you know, I, I do see both men and women. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you are right. And I think the perception um, is, a, is, a, is a perception or a stereotype for a reason because mm-hmm. um, I see mostly men. So at least in my experience, I see mostly men. Um, but through, through my research, um, what I have seen is that, and, and this is just, uh, there's various factors that play into the research, but, you know, typically we're seeing, if we want to focus in on pornography, mm-hmm. what the research shows is that, uh, about 30%, um, of the population that accesses pornography, um, at least once a month. Um, are women. Really? And 30%? 30% in the, United wow. in the United States. And so um, if, if you start looking at the numbers, you're looking at um, millions of people, right? Mm-hmm. And so within that, um, you start looking at, okay, which ones could this potentially be problematic use? Right. And so it's hard to sift through those numbers and find the exact, you know, reality of what's happening, mm-hmm. but, uh, it is real. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a problem in my opinion, and women also struggle with this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen it in my office. I think that because of those perceptions and stereotypes about men, that there's even greater stigma for women. That's such a good point. Even something more to be shame, shamed about, right? Or to feel shame yeah. about, as if we don't have enough to have shame over in, in life. Um, <laughs> like that, that's a really, that's a really good point because it's true. Um, I, my husband and I, we teach a pre-marriage class together and we're wanting to redo the curriculum right now because when we talk about sex in a marriage relationship, it is so generalized. Like this is what men like, this is what women, or this is what men, I I don't know. It's just very interesting. And I I think that that's changing culturally. Um, I think that, and maybe it's not changing at all. Maybe, I mean, women are sexual creatures too, but for so long, it's like only the men are the ones with the sexual power or whatever. And I just think, I, I don't know. I just know how I grew up and it was like, well, girls, your boyfriend's going to want to pressure you to have sex and you're not going to want to, but you might give in just to be nice. And I'm like, really? Like, what if I just want to have sex? Right. I mean, like, I'm just, we just have given the wrong perception of that. I think to women. And so, yeah, that's so, that gets me like, I think that should be a whole other episode in itself. That's very interesting. (laughs) Um, And yeah. Women women are absolutely underserved. Mm. Um, in this area, um, yeah. in addiction, I think, um, in a lot of the, the treatment centers, et cetera, you'll see, unless it's a, a program for women, mm-hmm. um, you're going to see mainly men. Hmm. And, wow. and especially when it comes to sexual addiction, hmm. I think there's such, such a stigma. Um, and so yeah. it's hard to measure, um, mm. you know, how many women, um, wrestle with this. And I think it is important to note um, just briefly, Aaron, that um, when we talk about addiction, um, I look at it on 
uh, a continuum or a spectrum. So on one end, you have compulsivity. Hmm. And on the other end, you have deprivation or restriction. And both are problematic. Hmm. Both are problematic. And and if we swing to one end or the other, Mm -hmm. then we're going to find that we tend to swing to the opposite end at some point. Oh. Um, it can lead to this binge purge pattern. Uh-huh. Like with eating disorders and right. I mean, that, that's what I think of when I think of the compulsivity and deprivation restriction. Um, wow. Okay. That's super interesting. Huh? Yeah. Um, do you think with that, um, are men more prone to addiction in general? Then women, I think I've, I've heard that somewhere. I don't know if that's even true. Um, what do you know about that? Like something about how they, their dopamine works differently than our dopamine or whatever. You know, I, I would say, I don't, I don't know if men are more prone to it. I think mm-hmm. there may be just different hmm. behaviors that maybe we tend towards. Um, and I don't have any data to back yeah. that up. Yeah, it's, it's a random question. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's a good, it's a good question. Um, I think that in, in my experience, um, I see, if we're talking specifically of sexual addiction, mm-hmm. um, with men, I tend to see more problematic behaviors um, with pornography mm-hmm. and um engaging with anonymous partners. Mm-hmm. Um, I see that with women as well, but not mm-hmm. as much. Okay. And then on with, with women, I tend to see more relationship and love addiction. Ah, okay. Um, that does not mean that there aren't problematic sexual behaviors. And mm-hmm. I'm making distinctions there that, um, you know, I think they're all related. But hmm. I do tend to see, um, in my experience, those differences. That is so, so interesting um, about how addiction in women manifests as relationship and love addiction. I think I've heard that before back when I did um, Celebrate Recovery a long, long time ago. We talked about um, relationship love addiction, but it's I hadn't heard that in a long time, and it makes so much sense. Um, I do have just... Two last questions. Number one, um, how do we support someone if we, if someone we love is struggling with a sex addiction, especially because it is so, it can be shaming, stigmatizing. What's the best way to support somebody who is going through that process of healing? You know, the the first thing that comes to my mind, Erin, is just being present with them and um, empathic and being curious. Um, and I almost equate curiosity with empathy um, in trying to understand what they're experiencing and going through. And that will help them maybe to, to open up or at least to open up and say, yeah, I need help. Um, maybe they're not going to talk about the details because um, our you know, sex and our sexuality is a very intimate, vulnerable topic. Um, and so if, if they're able and willing to do that, then um, we can encourage them to, to see somebody and talk more mm-hmm. about it who um, knows a little bit about the subject. Now, if it's, a, if it's a spouse who is exploring this and discovering this, 
that's going to be a different process, right? Because mm. the, the spouse or the partner in the relationship has been, usually has been uh, deeply wounded um, or hurt by mm. the other person's behavior. And so it's going to be really difficult to be empathic with the right. other person who's been wounded. And so in that case, there may need to be um, some work around setting some clear boundaries hmm. uh, with that person um, and, you know, communicating that um, that behavior has been hurtful and that that's not okay. And um, I'm asking for you to get help. Hmm. So it, it really depends on um, the situation. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I could ask you so many more questions. I think, I mean, I've had, I already in my head, I'm thinking, okay, what you were saying about the men, women thing, is it an intimacy? Are we teaching our boys to be engaged or disengaged? We could go there. Maybe we go there a different day. Um, but I think the way that we raise young boys is um, we, I don't know, I could go on a different tangent with that, um, where with their emotional regulation. I don't, I don't think we do a good job with that, but another day. Um, yeah. And so, and with the, the spouse part, I do have one question I will ask you that I'll throw at you real fast before we finish. Um, and then I need to, we need to get more information on how to find you. Um, is it necessary? Do spouses need to know all the details about the sexual addiction? How do you address that? Aaron, I hear this question with almost every client. Um, that that my spouse or my partner um, wants to know um, as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And it is such a complex uh, question to answer. Mm -hmm. Again, everybody is unique. Yeah. And so one person may need to know more mm -hmm. than the next person. And so there is no right answer there. Mm. Um, I do think it's crucial to keep in mind the care and support of the spouse or partner, um, mm -hmm. that they have a support community, that they have um, a therapist that they're working with, that who has experience in helping spouses and partners through this issue. Mm -hmm. um, so they've, they've kind of been around the block um, a few times. And they, they have that experience to know what is helpful and, not, and what is not helpful. Um, and so typically, if I had to give you an answer, um, so to explain the process, um, in my practice, what we do is what we call formal disclosure. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that we, I want to, to work with the spouse or partner who is working with um, their own therapist. And mm -hmm. I want to collaborate very closely with them. Mm -hmm. And we want to be in tandem helping the, per the, the, the two people in the relationship work through this process. Right. So on my end, if I'm working with the person with the addiction, um, I'm working with them to help them to increase their self-awareness Mm -hmm. help them to break down a lot of the compartmentalization that's developed mm. over, over course of time and um, help them to start putting together uh, the story of mm. what has happened. And then on the other end, the partner 
is working with their therapist, um, one, in getting that support that they need um, to validate and to acknowledge and recognize the pain that they're going through. And then begin the conversations about what do they want to know and Mm. what do they need to know. And to be able to give and receive feedback with that therapist that has that experience, I think, um, can be immensely helpful. So that's not the first conversation you have is what you're saying. (laughs) That's a process. I mean, this whole thing is a process. And I think that's why it's so interesting and it's important for people to understand. And hopefully we can all be a little bit more empathic when it comes to these issues. So, um, yeah. So how can people get in touch with you or contact you or where can we find you? Yeah. So, um, I have a website, um, it's communioncollaborative.com. Um, and you can also email me um, at niche at communioncollaborative.com as well. Okay. And I'd be more than happy to answer any questions um, and just be a resource. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much for, I know we've had a few sound technical difficulties that I'm going to try to clear up post-recording, but um, (laughs) thank you for all of your information and for being available to talk about this and for going there with people, because I don't know many people who would just decide, hey, I'm going to be a sex addiction therapist. So thank you for doing what you're doing and thank you for being on the show. Oh, thank you so much, Aaron. It's been, it's been an honor and, um, and really helpful for me as well. I hope uh, I can uh, be of help in the future. Thanks for tuning in to Sparking Wholeness. For more on all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul, check out my website, sparkingwholeness.com. Don't forget to be kind and subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts. And to be really kind, you can leave a nice review. I like those.